Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. So I don't know if you've seen the news, but the Army-Navy game, and our guests will care about this too, the Army-Navy game is now this year going to be played at Army. It's uh, They just made an announcement, and AAA made the announcement, and so it's not going to be played in Philly. It's going to be played at Army. Um, wow, and so, not, not on neutral ground. Right, it? exactly. So first time since World War II that it hasn't yeah. been played on neutral ground. So I, my good friend Bill Wagner of the Annapolis Capitol told me that the Army-Navy game was played at Army in 1942 and then at Navy in 1943 because of World War II. But since that time, it's been played you know, mostly in Philly, but other yep. neutral sites as far-reaching as the Rose Bowl one year, and obviously it's been in Baltimore um, a couple of times in recent years, but mostly in Philly, um, you know, either uh, as the stadiums have evolved there. In fact, my first Army-Navy game when I was a plebe was at the uh, JFK, right, way back when it was JFK, right there on the Schuylkill. It was freezing. That was a very cold venue. And then it went to the Vet. You know, if you're an old Philly Sports fan, you remember the Veteran Stadium, and and now yeah, it's that's at, where at it was for, for my my last three years. It was at the Vet. My first year, my plebe year, was the year that was in the Rose Bowl. So they flew the entire brigade out to Pasadena, out to California. You know, flew into L.A. and then they flew us all back. I heard crazy. some crazy it stories. It wasn't, you know, there was a big big uh, push to make sure that everyone knew that it wasn't taxpayer money paying for those flights. It was NAAA. It was you know, it was all the sports money at the, the time. The best story I heard from that, and you can tell me what the fallout of, was of this, was a group of mids went to the Playboy Mansion. I did hear that. Yeah. I was not one of them. <laughs> there was yeah. a there were a bunch of us that were on uh, winter sports teams. So I, I was a gymnast. And uh, early on, when they came up with this plan to send the entire brigade out to Pasadena, they told all the winter sports teams, you're not going. And so we were like, oh, okay, we, you know, we got over it. All right, sure, we'll just stay. We'll watch the game, our coach's house, whatever. And then literally like two days before, they said, oh, no, you're going. You're just going to all be on the last plane going out to L.A. and the first plane coming back. Oh, nice. And so like I, I arrived in Pasadena like at 2 in the morning the night before the game, and then we went to the game, and then we got on a bus and came right to the airport and got on an airplane and flew right back. So, so did did we win that one? What was the score? We did. We won that one. Okay. And I forget what the score was, but Napoleon McCallum was the uh, the linebacker, and he was in his – No, he's a fullback he, or running back. He's a halfback. Fullback, running back. Sorry, yeah. run, running back. Um, yeah, you'll have to correct that. So he was, yeah. a, he was the big, you know, world-famous running back who was in – in the hunt for the Heisman, right? And, yeah, uh, yeah. He was he was the famous guy. Went on to play uh, for the Raiders, and he got hurt. He hurt his yeah. he mangled his knee. That's right, right. But uh, he had a good game, and uh, Navy won. Uh, it was a you know pretty over uh, kind of an overwhelming victory for Navy that year. So as a plebe, we were all excited, and then yeah, just went right to the airport and right back. So, yeah. <laughs> good deals, good deals. Um, all right, let's get right to our guest. Okay, uh, so the, our guest on the show today is uh, who, uh, a Lieutenant JG who might be the most famous JG in the Navy right now. His name is Artem Shurbanin, Naval Academy graduate. Uh, he is on board the uh, USS Rafael Peralta, DDG, based in uh, San Diego. 
And uh, we published an article or a commentary that he wrote this week called A Fleet Without a Rudder. And um, uh, so welcome to the Proceedings Podcast, Artem. It's great to see you again. Yeah, great to see you as well, Bill. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for that introduction. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and for uh, you guys publishing the piece. So I think you and I first met a couple of years ago. You were a midshipman at the Naval Academy. You were helping to run the Naval Academy Foreign Affairs Conference. I was very impressed with you. And you've written for us a couple of times before this, and this is just your most recent piece. Yes, uh, that's true. But this one is by and far the most powerful one, and it's uh, the most read proceedings article for the month of October already. Uh, and you are you're taking on uh, some pretty tough issues here. It's things that we've talked about with a bunch of different authors and over the last couple of years. But I think you've assembled all of these different points in one place in a very, very powerful commentary. So just tell the readers a little bit about what what it is that you're uh, taking the Navy to task for, if you will. Yeah. So a uh, fleet without a rudder. Uh, is really, I mean, I'm the author, but it's really a piece by almost everyone in the kind of waterfront deck plate crowd. So the O5 and below, uh, certainly uh, the chiefs, the junior officers, uh, definitely the Blue Jackets across the fleet. Uh, is a, it's a piece about how the majority of us feel and see the direction the Navy going. And it's a piece that comes from a deep love of the Navy uh, and a desire to see it progress and get better but also uh, some of the frustrations that we're seeing uh, as a result of the operational tempo, some of the maintenance uh, issues that we're seeing, and certainly uh, a big concern for the human uh, element and kind of how sailors are really doing at the deck plates. So you, you talk about something that was rolled out a couple of years ago as the solution, really, um, the optimized fleet response plan. And there was great fanfare on the East Coast around, I think it was Truman, um, sort of, you know, going out, coming in, going back out and, and being max flex. And, and this was supposed to be the light and the way. And you're saying that that's not quite the case. What are some of those shortcomings? And you also quote Secretary Esper as saying the OFRP hasn't worked for years. So why would we assume it will work in the future? So obviously SecDef is not a fan of uh, the optimized fleet response plan either. Yeah. So OFRP is a tough piece, right? Uh, I I think there are actually some really positive elements, and I hope that my article didn't make it seem like I want to scrap the whole thing entirely, because the idea of trying to balance uh, readiness and maintenance and the requirement to get ships out to sea is really important. Uh, Where that balance is, that's where we, I think, struggled. And I kind of took the Navy to task for it, but that might not also be entirely fair. Uh, I did quote the the secretary, uh, and I think he's spot on that the OFRP is not working. But part of that is that OFRP has a function that falls outside of the Navy. So the COCOMs have a huge role to play within OFRP and requesting forces, right? So the Navy is responsible for bringing the ships and giving the ships over to the, to the COCOMs, and that's the function of the administrative command, chain of command. And then you've got the operational chain of command, which is pushing out this incredible demand for uh, ships and especially the hot commodity, which is carrier strike groups. Uh, and that's kind of where the OFRP has seen the biggest fault. Uh, we're, we're supposed to take these ships, uh, and specifically carriers and their strike groups, so there are several destroyers, a cruiser, um, and we're supposed to deploy them on a cycle that gives families uh, the chance to, to know when their sailors will be away, and it lets the ships know when they're going to get the maintenance assistance they need and also when they're going to go out to sea. 
the problem with that cycle uh, kind of rests in the sustainment phase. So that's the final piece of the cycle once you've completed your deployment, uh, or sorry, once you initiate your deployment, you enter the sustainment phase, you get back from deployment, the Navy and the COCOMs have a choice to make, right? They can keep you in the sustainment phase in port and sort of build up capacity or build up readiness. Um, you know, not a really clearly defined term, but let's just say the, sh the ships are ready to go to sea or they can eat up some of that readiness uh, at the expense of uh, surge capacity, right? So you can surge the ships a second time, but you eat up some of that readiness you've built up. And that's the piece that we're failing at because the demand from the COCOMs, which rests outside the Navy, uh, is really high for these uh, these hot hot assets right now. It's not just the carrier strike groups; it's it's every asset that the Navy has, right? And so your your commentary points to a supply and demand problem or a mismatch, right? So the demand is that demand signal for forward presence uh, for Navy assets from the COCOMs, from you know Indo-Pacific Command, from European Command, from Southern Command, et cetera, right? They want ships to be in their area of responsibility, ready for combat, ready for, you know, non-combatant evacuation operations, humanitarian assistance, whatever it is, right? They want forward presence. And the Navy's ability to provide that forward presence comes, you know, with ships that are manned, trained, equipped, that are maintained. And, and that's where you're, you're saying, hey, there's, there's a real mismatch here. So, yes. so point to point to the two. You, you give the example at the right at the start of the two carrier strike groups, right? That are getting double pumped. Yeah. So uh, that's you know that's a bit of a hypothetical, right? We we don't know exactly what the schedule of these ships is yet, but those ships are in the sustainment phase. So in the sustainment phase, there's the opportunity to double pump ships and. What I'm suggesting is that we've seen the Navy do this a lot recently, especially over the last uh, you know, six years. A lot of ships are getting double pumped or a lot of ships are going on these really long deployments. I mean, the everyone's favorite to point out is the Lincoln Carrier Strike Group, but uh, the USS Shoup just completed a record-breaking deployment. Uh, USS Paul Hamilton, you know, so forth, right? All these things you see in the news. Um, and those ships that are getting double pumped, that's what I'm describing as the demand for these assets from the COCOMs. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, I, I definitely took the Navy to task and uh, certainly said that, hey, OFRP doesn't work. But it, the Secretary of Defense is the one that signs the book that sends this ship on deployment, right? The Sec SecDef owns the orders book, uh, gets the demand from the COCOMs and, and signs his name on it. So, uh, you know, to Secretary Esper would certainly, uh, he certainly has a large role to play in this. So talk a little bit about what you're experiencing uh, out in San Diego, what you and your colleagues, your peer group are seeing when you come back from deployment and you're in that sustainment phase. Uh, what's happening with maintenance to your ships? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I just got back from deployment about six weeks ago. My, my ship is in the sustainment phase. Uh, we're, we're undergoing maintenance right now. I have, I have obviously, uh, coming off of a deployment, plenty of material uh, things to tackle, and we're, we're definitely getting the support we need, uh, but it's also a tight you know, turnaround, right? During that sustainment phase, you might experience an inspection, right? Some ships have to go through an in-serve, which uh, to anyone that's listening has, that has done that, certainly a large burden. You know, you're, you're working weekends, you're working till 18, 19, 20 hundred uh, on most nights. So uh, uh, the crew has to, has to go through that to get the ship ready to go. Because that's at the end of the day the, 
the job of the, the commanding officer is make sure his ship is ready to go to sea, and the TICOM provides the support to do that. But in order to make sure the ship is ready within such a short period of time, a lot of folks have to set aside other things going on in their lives. And that's, you know, families that they haven't seen in eight months. Uh, you know, my ship was deployed for that period of time and extended several times. Uh, people haven't, uh, as a result of COVID, aren't really able to travel. So that's an added stressor. Uh, folks aren't able to see their families. Let's say, you know, a single sailor, maybe his parents are on the East Coast or her uh, grandparents are uh, somewhere in Northern California, but the radius is, you know, a couple hundred miles in Southern California. So you combine all those stressors, the sustainment phase becomes, looks less and less like a, like a period for the ship to get ready, you know, the readiness thing, and more like the, the surge capacity issue that we discussed earlier. And so what are the specific COVID protocols that are making an already difficult problem worse? I mean, you mentioned the inability to travel, but what else do you have to do in terms of the quarantine, either before or after deployment that makes it even more onerous in terms of op tempo? Yeah, so, so the Navy's implemented a lot of uh, controls, uh, understandably, to ensure that ships uh, do not get covid uh, most famously, right, we know the Theodore Roosevelt, uh, but also USS Kidd experienced that. And to prevent that from happening, uh, sailors are going into uh, what we're calling a 21-day pre-deployment sequester ahead of ships deploying. So let's say you're a ship that deploys October 1st, you know, 21 days prior to that, you're entering this, your crew uh, is entering a pre-deployment sequester, which means part of the crew stays on board the ship, kind of a skeleton crew. Uh, you metaphorically pull the brow so nobody goes on and off. And then you have the majority of the crew in hotel rooms or barracks rooms, uh, quite literally just door locked. You know, you're given a meal three times a day uh, and that's your life for 21 days. So no um, families, no girlfriends. You're no. basically on cruise, except not as fun. Exactly. Yes. Uh, but that period doesn't actually count as part of the deployment. So if you're about to go on a six month deployment, which will inevitably be extended due to operational requirements. Uh, I say inevitably, you know, tongue in cheek, but that's kind of the experience of a lot of sailors over the last decade. Um, you're actually incurring another 21 day period. Now, if you're, let's say a ship that is just about to go on deployment. So you haven't entered the sustainment phase. You're actually in the advanced phase. You also endure a 30 day at sea exercise beforehand, uh, pretty well known, Right, the Navy implemented kind of the re-implemented the fleet battle problems of the days of old, and those are great training. But if you're incurring a 21-day sequester and a 30-day exercise, and then going on a six-month, which may be extended to eight or nine-month deployment, you're looking at almost 11 months away from home. And I'm sure there'll be somebody here that you know questions the math. Uh, I may be a little off, but it, it's a significant period of time. So, what is this doing to retention informally? What are you hearing in the wardroom to Bill's question? Um, you know, on the waterfront, what are you hearing? Because I remember back in the day, um, in fact, in my early career, Secretary Lehman codified op tempo pers tempo, tempo in law, right? So you couldn't violate it. And then that went away after he left. And we started having longer deployments and we started having shorter turnarounds and retention. And, you know, in a period as an aviator, when the airlines are hiring, you start hitting a pilot shortage, retention problem, so forth and so on. So it strikes me um, that we're on the cusp of this kind of uh, manpower issue. Yeah, so 
I can't speak to the numbers, the retention numbers. I certainly haven't seen them, uh, and I don't, I don't think the Navy is too inclined to release them. Uh, I know that other services have experienced retention issues. The Army in 2018 was, for the first time uh, in two decades, failed to meet its recruiting goals uh, and was struggling with manning. I imagine um, the Navy will experience something similar. COVID has is, is put an interesting kind of bottle cap on that, though. Right. A lot of sailors uh, that I know personally uh, on board my ship and others, uh, junior sailors or senior sailors, uh, have looked at uh, the COVID situation and looked at the economic situation in the country. Uh, they've seen the uh, massive unemployment rate and have gone, OK, I'm going to stay in for a little longer. So but I really think that that's a, a really temporary Band-Aid um, on the retention issue. Uh, I know I've had this article, the impetus for this article was conversations with dozens of junior officers, sailors, and chiefs, uh, and even some senior officers uh, at the 06 and above crowd uh, who all expressed a lot of concern with how people are feeling right now. Uh, and so I have a strong feeling that maybe we will see a dip in retention in, uh, after the COVID crisis, COVID economic crisis. Yeah, no, I think you, you make a really good point that right now with 23 million people, uh, you know, out of work in the United States and, and 787,000 filed for first time unemployment benefits most in the most recent week, weeks, it's probably a bad time to get out unless you have a very firm job offer, right? So that you're, you're right that that's probably a bottle cap keeping people in for now. But when and if, you know, that the COVID um, recession ends, you know, then we'll, we'll, the Navy will start to experience some retention problems. Again, we had Admiral Nowell on the show, Chief of Naval Personnel, back, what was that, January, February, it was pre-COVID. Seems like five or, years ago. Yeah, it, it seems like, you know, decades ago. Back um, when people could co-locate. Time, at, yeah, at that time, retention in the Navy was good. And, you know, first-term first sailor retention was at an all-time high. It was like 75 or 80 percent, which is really unheard of for, you know, old timers like Ward and me, who I think, you know, early in our careers, you know, retention for first time sailors was always down in the, you know, 30, 40% was pretty good, right? And now it's 75, 80%, probably higher right now for COVID. But, but, but over time, though, when you have this sort of, I would call it strategic dissonance, I think you used that term too, right? Yep. That, that you see, okay, what's going on? What is the Navy doing right now? It's, it's grinding its ship's up in these very long deployments, it's really, um, it's harming the morale of people. As you said, it's not a six month deployment anymore. It's nine months plus these ROM periods. You know, you're talking 10, 11 months away from family and friends and girlfriends and all that stuff. Right. Um, and for what, right. Are we, you know, this isn't 2014 when ISIS was on the outskirts of Baghdad. This isn't 2002, three, four, when we're fighting, you know, two wars in Afghanistan and and uh, and in Iraq, you know, this is a period of relative strategic level peace. So, is that forward presence? Is that much forward presence really necessary all the time? And I guess what is is that the conversation that you guys are having? Like, hey, why are, why are we doing this? Yeah. So I think the the conversation, especially in wardrooms across the Navy, uh, before this article and certainly after. Uh, was, hey, you know, let's say I'm on a ship in Sixth Fleet, right? Let's say I'm based out of Rota, Spain. Uh, I'm not. I'm based out of San Diego. But, you know, uh, if I'm out of Rota, Spain, uh, and I'm going on a patrol for eight months, 
I might be looking around and asking what exactly is the why behind this? And a junior sailors are doing the same thing. What's the why? And absolutely, the Sixth Fleet Admiral and the, the UCOM commander can say, look, we have an important deterrence mission uh, against Russia. We have an important deterrence mission uh, from against uh, Bashar al-Assad from using chemical weapons again, and we have to be ready. We have to maintain global presence. But that's kind of where that argument breaks down, right? Because there, it's that's a very difficult thing to quantify. Or how do we quantify whether a car- one carrier or two carriers, or sometimes doing dual carrier ops together in the South China Sea? How do we quantify that? That's having a deterrence effect on the Chinese. Right, presence is a difficult mission for the Navy to sell, uh, which is maybe why the strategic dissonance piece has resonated so well with a lot of folks. Uh, strategy, right? I mean, I, I'm a student of strategy. Uh, is an ends means calculation, right? We have limited amounts of means. Uh, we're trying to achieve an end objective. Presence is probably not it, right? Presence is not an end in and of itself. Just like great power competition isn't an end of it, end of itself. But I mean, you bring up a great point, and and this is a perennial, timeless uh, conversation. And the logic you posit, it's it reminds me of the early '90s. The other thing that enters this discussion when you talk about cocoms, because I've had CNOs say to me, "We got to learn how to say no," right? I mean, and so sure, you know, everybody on this ship, sir, is willing to say no. Um, but meanwhile, the COCOM is saying, I need a 1.7 carrier presence and I need the following. And there's no way that demand signal is going to go away, you know, and, and unless there's something from SECDEF or POTUS that says, look, we're breaking the fleet. You know, and I heard this from my service chief. I take his advice categorically and unconditionally. And so therefore, very respectfully, General Admiral, you're only going to get one carrier for seven months during the year and the associated strike group. Um, you know, and I don't see that happening because of what you've just said. You know, this thing about presence equals deterrence, that's that's the expeditionary warfare element of the Navy. That's, that's Stephen Decatur. You know, that's what we've always done. Um, I think what makes it worse in the COVID environment, and I just, as we all just saw the images of Stout coming home, looking like a end of Cold War era sovereignty, you know, rusted at the waterline, all kinds of of crud on the side. It looked ridiculously unkept. And, you know, I mean, that's what happens when you spend 200 plus days at sea, when you break the record um, without port calls, without any maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. So, you could ask, oh, hey, good good on hacking it, crew of stout, and we met our commitments, but what did we deter, and what happened, what did we keep from happening, and how is this bow wave of maintenance going to hurt us going forward now? You know, will stout ever be the same? And some studies would show you, no, you broke that ship, and there's no way to catch up now, keeping up with the op-tempo requirements, and et cetera, et cetera. The thing that makes my head explode is this argument that you're positing is a refrain, and it comes in, let's just say, 20-year cycles, and we never seem to learn our lessons. Um, and, and so what makes it worse, to go back to what I was meaning to say, is the COVID environment. So if I'm for deployed, the thing that can be balm on that wound is a port call, is a bilat, is you know some kind of independent steaming that's fun and recreational in nature. But none of that's happening, right? We're not doing any of those things. Yeah. 
Uh, to a lot, I'd say most sailors would actually agree that deployment is the best part of the cycle, right? So you go through your basic phase. You've got all these inspector, inspectors on board from the afloat training group. You're going through the intermediate advanced phases. You're doing these exercises. They feel really real. Uh, Smitic in particular puts on a great show uh, for their SWAT exercise uh, where you shoot a missile and uh, you do all this multi these multi-ship maneuvers. That's all great. And then you finally get past this, uh, this fleet battle problem, get into sustainment phase, get out on deployment, uh, and you don't pull into port. <laughs> and that's where I think the 30-day periods where sailors didn't pull into port in the past, they probably had conversations along the lines of, hey, I would, I'd like to pull into port. Now, during the 200-day period, the conversation looks more like, well, what are we really doing out here? You know, are we looking for fishing dows? Are we stopping smugglers? Uh, probably not. We're probably just providing presence, or maybe we're in a BMD box somewhere. As Admiral Richardson used to famously say all the time, uh, we have six ships around the world in a BMD box. What are they doing? Ballistic missile defense, right? And so they're yes. de they're deterring Iran from launching ballistic missiles, or they're deterring North Korea from launching. But but how do you measure that deterrence, right? It's It's measuring a negative. It's saying, well, they didn't do this because we had ships there, but. And then what's really the likelihood that? that that's actually going to happen, right? Again, yeah. uh, to Artem's point, you know, the crew isn't stupid, you know, all the way down to deck division. They're like, okay, yeah, we're going to launch BMDs against Iraq on this deployment or Iran. That's happening tomorrow, right? You know, so I, I got it, Captain. I'm all teary-eyed about the fact that we're, you know, meeting CNO Richardson's requirements here or allowing him to testify the hill to justify the fact we're out here. But I'm bored to death and there's no port call in sight and the chow sucks. And I'm not getting any mail and you shut down the Internet because you're you know, afraid of of OPSEC concerns. And I'm sick of the guys I'm burning with. And it just this starts to be this, you know, pressurized crucible um, that is untenable, you know, and I think we're reaching the point that economic situation or not, I remember in bad times being in the back of the ready room and going, I, and I was flying Tomcats for Christ's sakes, you know, saying I will do anything else but this, you know, because we were drilling holes in the sky or we're in the Eastern med doing nothing, you know, and the powers that be were sort of trying to get us all fired up. Like there was this Im impending war going to happen we're like, give me a break. You know, it just breeds cynicism. Okay, so this is a segue to, so what's the fix? Right? We're not, at the, at the independent forum, we don't just tee up problems. We offer yep. solutions, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and I do recognize uh, to those that have read this and said, hey, you're, you're doing the thing that every officer is taught not to do. You know, don't walk into the CO's stateroom and say, sir, it's broke uh, without offering a solution. Uh, I've definitely recognized that I've done that a little bit, uh, but there's two pieces to it. I, I think I have a couple ideas, uh, but I also recognize that I'm, I'm far from the smartest guy in the room and I'm looking at this from like a hundred foot perspective. And, and I know there are three and four stars out there looking at this from a 10,000 foot perspective. Uh, this is a three and four star level problem that you need a lot of information and a lot of experience, you know, 30 plus years of experience, which is 10 times the amount of experience I have in the Navy to solve these problems. Uh, do I think a, a new naval strategy uh, with really clearly articulated ends means uh, is, is important? Yes, absolutely. I think that's one solution. If the Navy can present that to the COCOMs, 
and say, this is our strategy, please fit within these requirements, that may have, have some effect. Uh, is articulating that end goal to the sailors really important? Yes. I think there's a lot of people out there that are willing to do a really hard job if you give them a why behind it. And I know that's a great leadership debate we can have about whether you have to give a why or not, but it really means a lot to the sailors when their strike group commander says, this is why we're out here. This is what we're doing. And if that why actually is justifiable. So I think those are, those, those are a great start. Uh, and then kind of the third point and final point would be uh, getting this perspective that I've offered, um, getting it up to the ears uh, of those making these major decisions. Because I think a lot of uh, folks might be, you know, at that senior rank, at the TICOM level, at the fleet command level, might just be getting the 80 or 90% answer. And I, I don't know, I might be wrong, but I have, a, I have a strong feeling that there's a perverse incentive for, let's say, if you're the N3 at a fleet, you know, the operations guy, uh, to, to give your admiral uh, not the full picture, or to maybe you yourself don't know the full picture. So getting those voices heard from the deck plates, I think, uh, would, would help. I think most three or four stars would say they work for you. Right. So I, I got it. You, you don't have their point of view, but, you know, their their business is to make you have job satisfaction and feel like you can accomplish the mission. So let's let's just say that. But your money paragraph here and let's just say that this this article, however many words it is, fifteen hundred thousand words is just the opening salvo. So not to give you a homework assignment, um, but your next to last paragraph, let me read it because that's the money paragraph, but the devil's in the details of what do you mean with the elements here, right? So this is just to put a finer point on what you just said in passing. Moreover, the Navy should release a new maritime strategy, strategy that articulates clear geographic priorities, right? So that's, that's point one. Yep. Point two, sheds mission requirements that do not improve war fighting against great powers. Okay, that's that's a big deal, right? And the devil's in the details because, again, a COCOM would have to be an honest broker about what are the mission requirements that do not improve war fighting. You know, so is a port called the Da Nang part of that? Is um, just patrolling the littorals around the Spratleys part of that without any real end state? Is presence deterrence? So... Okay, let's yep. let's think about that. Presents a fleet, uh, so this is a huge one. This is, you know, the thing that I, that that uh, Modley was in, unable to do before he flamed out, and uh, the thing that Esper is sort of being loose and free when we change the number from three fifty five to five hundred and something. Okay, so presents a fleet design with realistic ship numbers, and creates a timeline for achieving these objectives. That's like what you just said. There is create a space program and land on Mars. <laughs> right, and likewise, shipyard reform—that's part and parcel to the previous bullet—and investments in new maintenance technologies, realistic assessment of readiness, would reform the OFRP and significantly improve the Navy's ability to take combat-ready ships to sea. And then, oh, and by the way, personnel resiliency, talent retention—all the things we're talking about that we have concerns as a second order consequence to not getting those first things right. So in that paragraph, you've got six proceedings articles and maybe a couple of us and I press books. And I'm not saying this yeah. is all work for you, but I'm just saying that we got to flesh that part out, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's a reason that paragraph is kind of the shortest. Uh, and it's because I felt like, uh, 
I wanted to get the attention uh, for for this article. Uh, I wanted people to kind of feel like they felt the problem personally. Uh, you know, when I was writing this, uh, the audience that I was thinking of first and foremost was my my fellow JOs and uh, junior sailors that we lead. Uh, that was kind of the audience I wanted to look at this article and say, yes, I feel that same way. And I think I think the articles accomplished that. That the second group I wanted to read it was obviously the E7 or sorry uh, O7 and above crowd uh, to look at that paragraph in particular and, and kind of think about those things, but maybe like feel less of the the previous uh, issues. Uh, you know, kind of going down the list, right? The six clear geographic priorities. Um, wrote that a little bit in the strategic dissonance section. Uh, I think we've all agreed as a national security community that Fifth Fleet. So the Middle East area, CENTCOM region, uh, is is kind of like a black hole. There's a great War on the Rocks article recently. Uh, I apologize, I forget the author's name, but uh, he described it as a black hole that kind of sucks everything in. Uh, maybe move away from that towards what we've clearly identified as a Navy as the priority, which is the Indo-Pacific. Uh, all the way back to uh, President Obama's pivot to Asia, that is clearly the new priority. So let's allocate the resources that we need to it. But once we're out there, maybe shed some of the missions that ships are doing. Uh, we've got right now, you know, ships doing ballistic missile defense in Seventh Fleet. We have ships doing uh, counter-smuggling operations. We have ships doing uh, fawn ops, freedom of navigation operations. Right? These are all kind of well-known, well-publicized operations. Um, maybe we, as a as a navy at the fleet commander level and at the COCOM level, certainly uh, need to identify which of those missions we need to do and which we don't, and then allocate ships accordingly. Uh, the fact that there's a lot of those ships that spend maybe 300 plus days at sea in the Indo-Pacific uh, region, uh, that's that's a pretty staggering number and probably means they have a little bit too much on their hands. Uh, realistic ship numbers and a timeline for getting to that objective. Uh, I apologize to Secretary Esper uh, and to the Navy, but I do not think 500 ships is realistic. The Navy's fiscal year 21 budget says as much, and the cuts that we're seeing to shipbuilding, uh, I forget the exact numbers they are in my article, uh, are substantial. So cutting shipbuilding and asking for 500 ships doesn't seem like a winning strategy to me. Uh, shipyard reform, new maintenance technologies, uh, you know, part of that is, that's an easy thing to say, really difficult to accomplish. Uh, I'm, there are some, some of the most smartest people in the country are working on figuring out how to get our industrial base back. Shipyard of reform is going to be a tough sell. But as we've seen recently, uh, clearly accidents with ship, within shipyards happen, uh, and maybe we're not get, the Navy's not getting the best quality product that it could. I'm sure there's plenty of junior officers and senior officers uh, who are now flags, but remember their first destroyer command and remember coming out of the yards and having all kinds of problems to fix. Uh, new maintenance technologies, uh, that's actually a big one. Um, you know, I've written before about things like predictive maintenance, uh, you know, using machine learning algorithms to uh, advance certain aspects of the maintenance process. Uh, that's pretty huge. I think uh, relying more heavily on those technologies could actually save the money, Navy a lot of money. Uh, and then really when I focus on the sixth part um, at the end, talent management, I'll wrap this up with, is uh, is key. And I don't know if we'll be able to retain our top talent. Uh, I know certainly plenty of the conversations I've had with my peers, um, many of the, the top performing junior officers uh, and top performing sailors don't really feel uh, like they're, they're enjoying the work that they're doing. 
Uh, and there's plenty of research out there. You know, I'm sure you could find a Harvard Business Review article right now if you just type in uh, job satisfaction uh, equals pay and find articles disputing that. Right? It's not about the money. Nobody does this job for the $110,000 surface warfare officer department head retention bonus. People do it because they love the sailors, the Navy, and really believe in the mission. And I don't know if we're keeping those folks around anymore. Talent management piece is huge. Uh, and that's certainly on uh, on all of us uh, from the deck plate up to, you know, Admiral now to, to cultivate. Uh, that's a great point. I've, I've touched on a couple of them just because uh, other people have been written, writing about them a lot. And um, there's some rumors about uh, a maritime strategy coming. Right. So we know that uh, Navy, Marine Corps and Coast Guard together. Uh, the service chiefs have been working on a new maritime strategy. Uh, it was supposed to be out oh, a month, two months ago, um, and it was delayed. And then uh, we, we were hearing it's delayed again, probably till after the election. And, you know, so there's a lot of questioning about, you know, at, at in the in the fourth quarter, not only the fourth quarter, but the, you know, the final two minutes of the game for this administration, at least this administration's first, you know, run, if it gets reelected, right? What, what's the value in dropping a maritime strategy at this point in the cycle? Um, but the other thing about it, and this gets to the, you know, the dissonance, um, a maritime strategy that comes from the service chiefs is of perhaps questionable value, I think, because, um, you know, they are they are the 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 ways and the means part, but they're not the ends part, right? You still have the COCOM. What is it we're trying to accomplish in this particular area of the world or this particular area or, or you know, geostrategically around the world, right? And until the COCOMs are on board with uh, curbing their appetite that the service chief can, can satisfy, if that appetite is still much more than the service chief can ever possibly satisfy, and as you point out, you know, CENTCOM for the last 20 years has been a black hole. We need 2.0, 2.5 level CSG presence. We need submarines. We need we need everything all the time. Oh my God, right? And so, uh, you know, the Navy provided that, provided that, provided that, but it ate up a lot of forces. And now we're, we're you know, we continue to do that with a smaller and smaller fleet. Um, but the other part of it, you know, back to the uh, the maintenance piece, we had a great article in the October proceedings by Lieutenant Kotlikov, a submarine officer who uh, was serving on board the uh, USS Ohio. Uh, she wrote about, and this is just one of many examples, right? I'm sure you know many examples in the surface force, but she wrote about being on the Ohio as they were getting ready to go into what was supposed to be a nine-month, uh, you know, shipyard availability that turned into a 30-month endurance, you know, test for the crew, right? And so, as as you know, I met you when you were a midshipman, excited about becoming a surface warfare officer. And you know, you, what you have in mind when you're at the Naval Academy, you think about what I'm going to do as a as an officer, is you know, leading sailors at sea and you know, being overseas and making the port calls and doing the fun stuff. Um, it's not about leading sailors through a three-month or, th- or I mean, not three months, a three-year you know, shipyard availability. Oh my God, that's just an endurance test, right? With no fun. Um, so those are some really, as you point out, those are some really big, hard things to solve. Uh, none of them is going to get solved anytime soon, but nothing gets solved until you realize, until leadership realizes, hey, we got a problem, right? And so I think you've done people a, a huge service by pointing it out and pointing it out in such an articulate way. But 
hey, this is what we're experiencing. This is what we're seeing. And it's not just me, but, oh, my God, here's all the different aspects of this this problem from COVID to double pumps to maintenance problems to a lack of strategy to what's the why that sailors and young officers can't understand the why of why we're out here for nine months in the in the CENTCOM area. What are we accomplishing? All these things together uh, makes your piece a, a very powerful, powerful piece. I wanted to ask one more question because yeah. we're running short on time. But um, you said as we were you know, doing mic checks and stuff that you've had some phone calls from some senior officers about your article. Um, and, you know, what kinds of things, both, you know, criticism, but also maybe encouraging are you hearing from people? I think the most encouraging thing that I've heard so far, and this is actually from not just senior officers, but also so many of my peers and academy classmates and and chiefs and master chiefs and so forth. Uh, you know, I kind of woke up the first day after the piece uh, came out to, to hundreds of messages, which was kind of a shock. Uh, I think the most encouraging thing that I've heard is that it started a conversation and that there's a lot of other people that feel this way up and down the chain of command and are really eager to get after this problem. Uh, I know for a fact, like I said, far from the smartest guy in the room, uh, definitely actually have way less information than than many of my peers who maybe have done two deployments or have kind of been to two AORs or have seen multiple maintenance availabilities and so forth, have kind of that breadth of experience. Uh, I think the fact all these people are, are attacking this problem head on uh, is really encouraging and exciting. Uh, the real test, of course, will be to see if we can all put our words to actions. Absolutely. And so the, you're exercising the DARE factor. This was Admiral Warden's intent. The Naval Institute was created in a time of challenge when the Navy was going the wrong direction. That's why the 15 gathered uh, in all of our alma mater's science and physics building. I don't know if you've seen the, the picture of what the yard looked like in 1873, but it was a fairly <laughs> meager footprint. Um, but it's, we don't use the forum to write about stuff that's inconsequential, you know, so we salute you for the courage to have the dare factor and we encourage others to read this article and sort of get a feeling of the independent forum being used to its best effect. We're very proud of where you've been in the last two years. Um, do take some time to, decompress, uh, you know, because as you've already uh, hinted, your interdeployment training cycle is going to be shorter than traditional. And all of a sudden you'll be back at sea. You'd be like, you know what? <laughs> I didn't do anything that I thought I would during the limited free time I had. So, so do, you know, have a nice work-life blend in so far as you're capable. Remember leadership isn't what you thought would happen to the point that Bill was just making. I think some of us criticize the Academy for being a little too static in terms of predictability. Um, so, you know, you're a smart guy, obviously, and, and you strike me as a guy who would Roger up to a leadership challenge. Um, so on behalf of the Graybeards, uh, please keep doing that um, and keep writing for us uh, as we've already teed up for your homework assignment. Uh, you know, we want to go deeper on some of the other elements that you tee up here um, and keep the critics from saying, OK, Lieutenant, you've teed up a problem with no solution. Right. Um, and, yep, and absolutely. So. And I, you were talking before we came on air that you, you do have support of your immediate chain of command, and that's always good because that doesn't always happen. Yeah, uh, I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, and I, I often tell people, and I would put this out to, uh, to you and to your peers and also to our listeners, you know, it's rare that a proceedings article is the alpha and the omega on any particular issue, right? A series of proceedings articles will, will do that. The conversation starts with, 
a Lieutenant JG who says, man, I'm seeing some really big, big problems here. This is what they look like. And here are some ideas. And then, you know, the, the department head, the CEO, the admiral, the, you know, the chief, the chief's mess all chime in with it. Well, here's some things we could do on the maintenance piece. Here's what we can have, what we can do with the strategy. Here's what we can do with, you know, perhaps the mismatch between supply and demand. His, you know, the, the the ensuing conversation that I think will happen and play out now over the next you know several months to the year uh, will will provide a lot of that right so please tell your your uh, shipmates and your your naval academy peers and and other um, uh, colleagues that you know hey chime in write write about this you know pick up a piece take some some of that uh, theme and and you know move move ahead with it we'd like to see more of it yeah absolutely. I highly encourage anybody who, who's read this and, and has a critique or, or agrees with something but disagrees with something else, uh, please write about it in, in the Naval Institute's proceedings uh, and get this conversation going, especially uh, uh, to any senior officers listening to this. Uh, please appreciate your experience uh, chiming in on this matter. Awesome. All right. Well, we're out of time. That's another issue of uh, another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.